Hey, thanks for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to hear more and help support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness or find links to all our socials at zero brightness.com. Okay, so due to a series of setbacks, I'm here alone uh, to talk to you guys about a game I played called Signalis. Um, we are still planning on doing a discussion app. That's with uh, me and Justin, who also played the game. Um, but I don't know when that's going to come out. I think probably next week would be my guess. So I'm going to do what I did with Madison, do kind of a part one and a part two. I wanted to lay down some thoughts on this game while it was still fresh and just kind of generally go over some of the stuff that I thought about the game while playing it and uh, yeah just give you guys something to listen to while you wait for the discussion episode so what is Signalis it's a brand new game by a company called Rose Engine what caught people's eye about this game was a combination of two stylistic ideas on the one hand the game had this very very striking aesthetic and presentation It looked like a kind of cyberpunk, sci-fi, 90s anime sort of thing. A ton of beautiful design at play, great direction in the cinematics. Just did a very exciting look and visual style for a game. On the other hand, in terms of its gameplay, the game was advertising itself as an old school survival horror game. Yes, a throwback survival horror game, if you will. A topic that we've discussed many times on this show something that I have a lot of very, very mixed feelings about, personally. Now that I've actually played the game, I can say that it really is exactly what it says on the tin. It's an old-school, very old-school survival horror game that also has a super unique aesthetic and style. And that's not just a visual style, it also extends out to the story the themes, the way that the narrative is presented and the way that that story is told. It's really, really incredible. And I think that the mishmash of those two ideas is very, very interesting. It's like there's some really, really forward thinking stuff and there's some very, very retrospective leaning stuff, shall we say. Now, from the get-go, I'll say this. Signalis isn't purely an old-school Gen 1 survival horror game, although it has a surprising number of ideas directly imported from that style of game. It also has a lot of modernizations, and it takes a lot of influence from a sort of survival horror adjacent genre, that being the Metroidvania genre. Even if you've just seen, you know, demos or early previews of the game, you'll notice some things that differentiate it from something like the first couple Resident Evil games or the original Silent Hill, for example. For starters, the perspective is an overhead, slightly tilted view. It's more like something we would see in like a twin stick shooter or once again, a modern Metroidvania game than something that we would see in a survival horror game. The combat is also purposely built to support this perspective. It plays more like a twin-stick shooter in terms of its combat than a classic survival horror game. Or it might be more accurate to say that it sort of mashes up the combat of an old-school survival horror game with a twin-stick shooter. So there's a lot more fluidity in the way that you aim and use the weapons in the game. However, it is still slow and purposeful it still saddles the player with a lot of limitations in order to make everything feel tense and claustrophobic. This game never really gets to the point of empowering you. You're always going to be up against the wall. Those modernizations that I mentioned though make a huge difference in this game. The pickup and play factor here is much, much larger than in any classic survival horror game. You're not going to be fighting clunky controls or trying to figure out how to do really basic things in this game. You can basically just press start and go. That's one of the best things about this game. I love the way that it sets up the game and just takes off at a sprint. It really highlights how subtle and smart the environmental storytelling and world building is in this game. 
a lot of this game is very, very subtle. You're going to have to wait to find clues before you can even begin to figure out what's going on in this game. And that's something that I really, really loved. The intro of Signalis finds you waking up aboard a futuristic spacecraft and taking control of a humanoid character. Very quickly, you learn some basics about this world. The character you're playing as is a replica, basically a humanoid robot or something along those lines that is assigned as a companion to a human space traveler. Soon after this introduction, however, your ship crash lands and you begin exploring a mysterious underground base that seems to be overrun with corrupted replicas, beings similar to your own character but infected by some kind of bio-mechanical virus that's turning them into very, very Silent Hill-esque faceless monsters. Now, before we get any deeper into this game, we have to talk about this game's setting. It is one of the coolest and most striking things about the game itself. As you're going through this early section of the game, you see all sorts of scene setting materials, posters, notes, things that are telling you about this world and how it works. And you very quickly get the feeling that it is a futuristic sci-fi dystopia. To me, it immediately scanned as something straight out of the cyberpunk genre. And let's talk about cyberpunk. Cyberpunk is a word that you've heard a lot of over the last year and a half or so, thanks to CD Projekt Red releasing the big controversial game called Cyberpunk 2077, whatever. We're moving past that. What I think is interesting is that in the wake of this game, there still hasn't been a ton of discussion surrounding what the genre of cyberpunk itself actually is and what sort of seminal works led to its propagation within mainstream culture and media. Personally, I've always been a huge fan of this subgenre because it really centers around a lot of works that I personally love. Cyberpunk is a sci-fi subgenre that, if you're a big fantasy head, is comparable to low fantasy. It's dark, grimy, dystopian sci-fi that often covers very existentialist topics. From its inception, it's always been curious about what makes someone or something human and how we draw the distinctions between genuine humans and other sentient beings. It's something that I've been expecting to come back into vogue for a long time now because a lot of the topics and themes that it covers are super, super relevant to modern day struggles with and anxieties surrounding new tech, specifically the propagation of AI tech and, you know, where that's actually going in the future. To me, it would be hard to dispute that the cyberpunk subgenre stems almost directly from the works of Philip K. Dick or PKD. Philip K. Dick, if you're not familiar, is a sci-fi author who is an easy pick for the greatest of all time for me personally, and I put him up there with luminaries like Arthur C. Clarke. His works were so unique because they had a real sense of political and social reality to them. They had far-flung concepts and ideas, such as futuristic tech and sentient AI and things like that. However, they were grounded in really grimy, realistic worlds. You really couldn't escape the economic and sociopolitical realities of these worlds. And I think that nobody else really did that in the way that he did. I think even someone like Arthur C. Clarke, who in a lot of ways was like a utopian realist, who is imagining these kind of very wild futuristic worlds, but also acknowledging the very real sociopolitical problems that things like advanced tech, space travel, and contact with aliens would cause, still didn't get as dark and grimy and dystopian as someone like Philip K. Dick. If you haven't read his stuff, you really, really need to if you have any interest in the genre or this particular subgenre. PKD's work has had probably the greatest impact on 
mainstream media and culture, however, not through any work of his own, but through an adaptation. That adaptation is, of course, the film Blade Runner. Yes, I'm talking about Blade Runner again, and longtime listeners of the show know that it's one of my favorite films of all time. Blah, blah, blah. The point here is that Blade Runner did something really, really different and unique with a work by Philip K. Dick. That work was Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, a novella that really centers around people yearning for connection and genuine experiences within an artificial world. It's a really eerie read nowadays because so many of the concepts that he wrote about as futuristic sci-fi just exist in the modern day as normal things. However, the points that he was trying to make and the social commentary that he embedded within that work is as relevant as it ever was. Blade Runner is a really wild adaptation because it's not a direct take on that work. Instead, it's more like another story set within a world very similar to that of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. A lot of the themes are the same. The things that the characters go through and the feelings that they have throughout the story, once again, are very similar, but it takes things in a very, very different direction. The biggest impact it probably had upon media and especially the work of other artists was the world that it created and the way that it portrayed it. The world of Blade Runner is unlike anything else especially at the time that it was released. It's basically a dark and grimy sci-fi dystopia, but it's also one that's eye-popping. A big theme in the presentation of the world is sensory overload. It's a place where it's dark and rainy all the time, where tons of different cultures are mashed up and people are forced to live on top of one another. However, it's also dimly lit by a constant scroll of LCD screens. There's something dark and horrifying about its world, but also very, very beautiful. The movie plays this up by framing it as like a wistful noir tale. Our hero is a classic detective. He drinks scotch while staring out the window and listening to, I don't know, like a synth version of blues saxophone. It's so like retro leaning that at times it could be almost funny if it wasn't so beautiful and so affecting. Blade Runner is ultimately a masterclass in taking tired tropes and turning them on their heads. The way that it subverts all of these ideas that it pulls from classic noir and detective fiction is masterful. And the reason that it all lands is because at its core, it has really, really interesting, unique, and existential themes. The big question in Blade Runner, once again, is what does it mean to be a human? How do we distinguish a genuine human, and I'm putting that in air quotes, from a human creation that appears to be sentient, that can think for itself, feel for itself, and act for itself? Blade Runner illustrates these themes by giving the whole film a really unreal air. The movie is slow moving, there isn't a ton of dialogue, and it plays up all the negative space that exists within each and every scene of the film. There's tons of long shots of just things happening without human characters in the frame or even dialogue. And it spends a lot of time showing you what the world looks like and what it feels like to exist within that space. This is why a lot of people are so obsessed with the world created by Blade Runner and why it's had such a long lasting cultural impact. Once again, especially on other artists and people who do creative work. Blade Runner spent a lot of time and put a lot of work into fleshing out its world and immersing the viewer within it. Once again, there is a ton of scene setting. We really get a feel for what it's like to be someone who lives in this world. While the combination of Philip K. Dick's written work and the visual adaptation of Blade Runner would introduce people to the concept of a grimy, dystopian future 
where people would long for authentic experiences in an extremely inorganic world. It was the work of another author that would add some of the missing pieces needed to fully flesh out the cyberpunk genre. That author is William Gibson. Viewed by many as the grandfather of the cyberpunk genre and a huge player within that scene, Gibson is another amazing sci-fi author. I am a huge, huge fan of his work. And it is really for a lot of the same reasons that I love Philip K. Dick's work. Besides just being a great stylist, the power in Gibson's writing is that he always remembers to include realistic socio-political ideas within his work, many of which, once again, have come true in the modern day. Gibson's seminal work was Neuromancer, a novel that introduced a lot of people to concepts that would soon be very familiar to them, like the internet and the phrase Microsoft. However, the greatest contribution that this novel had to the cyberpunk style, in my opinion, is, once again, the world in which it's set. The world of Neuromancer and many of Gibson's works is a place where technological freedom is contrasted by political fascism. It's a world where people are held down, disenfranchised, and denied their rights. This leads them to burrow into the internet in order to gain some form of freedom, whether that's financial freedom, or freedom of expression, or something else entirely. There's a big focus on subcultures springing up within this strange and disparate world. This is really where the term cyberpunk comes from. And I know that technically it's based off of a short story, and then later there is a tabletop RPG written, blah, blah, blah. But I think that if you were to really get semantic about it, the reason that the term cyberpunk fits this subgenre of fiction so well is because it puts such a premium and focus on both aesthetics and the ways in which people burrow into different subcultures to express their identities when they're denied political freedoms. I think these works feel so relevant to the modern age because once again, they parallel what we are experiencing right now in our lives. The internet has for many years now offered us the promise of endless freedom and infinite knowledge and yet, we can't seem to escape the shackles of capitalism and crooked politics, even when we are completely divorced from physical reality. The final piece of the puzzle that really solidified cyberpunk as a genre and style was the way that it was filtered through Japanese visual media throughout the 80s and 90s. There are two era-defining, groundbreaking anime films that really helped people visualize these strange and existential sci-fi dystopias. The first one is the 1988 film Akira. Now, I think a lot of you probably know I love Akira. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's such a stunning film and an achievement in filmmaking and animation alike. Trying to gauge Akira's contributions to the cyberpunk genre, however, is kind of difficult because it's such a weird and unique movie. It really does feel like a super personal character study that's set in a really insane and outlandish world. That contrast is kind of what makes it a classic, as well as the film's super unique style, which includes incredible animation, great music, and great visual direction. It's probably most accurate to say that Akira created and solidified a lot of the big tropes that we associate with this subgenre, be they visual motifs, styles of movement and action, or what have you. A lot of those same things could be said about the other big anime film that helps solidify cyberpunk, which is the 1995 film Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell did a lot of those same things by taking it in a totally different direction. It's more of a standard action movie than Akira, 
but it's visual direction, it's world building, and its contributions to the genre can't be downplayed. When a lot of people think of cyberpunk or that visual style, they think of the color palette and visual design from Ghost in the Shell, and they're not wrong to. Cyberpunk is often seen as an 80s genre, and it makes sense. A lot of the seminal works that helped to create it came out in the 80s, the term itself was coined in the 80s, and a lot of the aesthetics seem like a retro future that stems directly from aesthetics and design styles that were popular in the 1980s. However, there was also a big wave of this stuff in the 90s, and I think Ghost in the Shell was kind of at the forefront of it. However, there's lots of other media works that reinterpret that whole cyberpunk style and aesthetic in really, really interesting ways. My personal favorite 90s cyberpunk media is the filmography of Shozen Fukui. He's a Japanese director that I talked about a little bit in the Galerians episode, and Galerians is something that will come up in a second too. Fukui's work is really strange and unique. Personally, I'm such a huge fan for so many reasons. He had a really grimy, guerrilla filmmaking style. His movies are all shot on cheap DV cameras. A lot of it was just shot out in the street without permits, and it gives it a very unique style and feel. He also had a big focus on weirdly sexualized gore and like kind of oddly disgusting scenes of biomechanical horror. His worlds were definitely grim, futuristic dystopias. However, they were also dark and dirty and disgusting. There's a griminess that I think most great works of this genre have. However, Fukui's films take it and push it to the next level. I think he also explores a lot of these relevant themes that I've been harping on throughout this episode in his works. My favorite is the movie Pinocchio 247, a film which explores ideas of sentience and AI autonomy, albeit in a very strange, over-the-top, and ridiculous way. In the late 90s, the PS1 seemed to be a hotbed of cyberpunk media. While a lot of B-list and below video games seem to cop the style and graft it onto kind of nothingware, there were some really interesting horror and horror-adjacent works that came out at this time that cop the aesthetic. My favorite is, of course, Galerians, a game that I've talked about probably way too much at this point, but it's because it really left an impact on me. On the one hand, Galerians is kind of just a tribute act to more classic media properties like Akira or Elfin Lied, but on the other hand, it's also set within a really interesting and unique world and has its own interesting tale to tell. It's not very deep, it's kind of the same, you know, weird kids with superpowers shit that you would expect in a post Akira media landscape, but the way that it's told, the aesthetics of it and the way that it's presented are super unique and cool, and I'm just a huge fan of it. Galerians is a game that I kind of couldn't stop thinking about while I was playing Signalis, mostly because it mined very similar territory. Mixing in existentialist cyberpunk storytelling with very, very old school survival horror gameplay is a very unique lane and one that hasn't really been explored by many works of media. There was another one, however, that came to mind. It's not exactly the same thing, but I think there are some pretty big similarities here. That is the Fear Effect series. Fear Effect and its sequels were very, very late era PS1 games that, once again, mixed classic survival horror gameplay with cyberpunk storytelling and aesthetics. It was set in a super dark, very heavily Blade Runner influenced world and it also copped a super unique visual style one that was kind of like proto cell shading although it also used the pre-rendered backgrounds of the classic resident evil games to give it a more cinematic look and i really need to stress how resident evil influenced these games were we're talking tank controls we're talking clumsy combat we're talking pre-rendered backgrounds fixed camera angles all that good shit Fear Effect was a really, really interesting game. I think that, once again, its world was really cool, although that's 90% up to the stunning visual design. 
Its story is just okay, but the game's real Achilles heel was always its gameplay. Now, I want you to imagine the clumsiest, worst playing survival horror game you've ever played in your life. Just like, think about it. Think about what it felt like to hold the controller, to move the character around, to cycle through items or fire a gun. Think about all that stuff. Can you think of it? Okay. Now imagine that and make it 10 times worse. <laughs> That's Fear Effect. Fear Effect is a game that I've gotten many requests to cover. It's something that I am interested in covering and talking about eventually because, like I said, I think there are redeeming qualities to the game, especially, once again, if you're a fan of this style and aesthetic. However, it's just not fun to play. It's a slog, and I think that the game mostly is just an interesting mood and vibe piece. I'm not sure exactly how much there is to say about Fear Effect, besides how dirty it was done by the marketing department, who decided that the only interesting and noteworthy thing about the game was that it featured a woman protagonist who they could put in a bikini and slap all over EGM ads. That was foul, that sucked, and it really didn't give people an idea of how interesting and creative of a work Fear Effect was. I think a lot of my personal interest in Signalis was that I've been waiting for someone to make another media work in this style. One that hopefully is not just better constructed and more fun to play, but also more accessible so that more people can experience these fascinating existentialist dystopian sci-fi worlds that the subgenre of cyberpunk is so good at creating. I love these kind of stories. I love the themes. I love just existing in these dark, burnt out, fucked up sci-fi worlds. If you identify with that, and that's also what you want out of Signalis, then this game is a 10 out of 10 slam dunk. Bonus points if you're willing to put up with some really frustrating gameplay stuff, which we'll get to later. And what you're left with is a modern cyberpunk masterpiece. A game that you're, if you're into all this shit, if you like all this stuff, you have to experience. I want to talk about that a little bit before I get into the stuff that I thought was so frustrating because it's really the thing that left a lasting impression on me after playing this game and the thing that's making me want to dive back in and play it again right now. The world of Signalis is fantastic. Now, despite the fact that I just spent like 20 minutes talking about cyberpunk, Signalis isn't exactly cyberpunk in the way that its world is set up. It's a little bit more of a traditional sci-fi dystopia. However, it's the way that the world and the story are presented that makes me feel like it is squarely in the genre of cyberpunk. Signalis mostly takes place throughout a couple different underground military-style bases. However, it doesn't fall prey to the problems of a game like Hybrid Heaven, for example, where you're just stuck in endless corridor after endless corridor, because the game is suffused with a heavy dose of nasty, grimy, fleshy bullshit, for one, and for two, a massive, brain-breaking dose of intense psychedelia. Signalis is the kind of game that likes to play fast and loose with reality, and it's one of the game's strongest characteristics. Like I said earlier, you start off in a futuristic military base that has been overrun by some kind of virus, turning all of your fellow replicants, I mean, oh, sorry, replicas, into horrible Silent Hill-style monsters and coating the walls in crime, gore, and miscellaneous types of muck. You find yourself on a very inscrutable and strange quest to find someone. Initially, it seems like maybe you're looking for your human partner that was lost in the crash, but soon you start to see flashes of memories and past lives that you're not sure are your own, your partner's, or someone else's entirely. This is one of the things I loved most about this game's narrative. It doesn't really tell you shit about the world, and then it starts feeding you things that are kind of familiar from other works 
of sci-fi, but that work really, really perfectly within this tale. Right away, we're given the Blade Runner problem, which is that we don't know what a human is in this world. We don't know what is considered a human, and we don't even know how they created these humanoid robots. Do they have souls? Do they have memories? Do they have past lives? We're just not sure. As the game goes on, we actually do get answers to some of these questions as well, which is another thing that I was really, really scared of while playing this game. The longer it went on, the more I feared that we were going to get some kind of cop-out, vague ending that didn't really wrap anything up, and that's not what happens. Despite the game having two different endings, and one slightly hilarious fake-out ending that almost got me, uh, both endings wrap things up really nicely and provide enough detail that I don't think anyone will be disappointed by what they see in them. To me, this is such a big deal because the way that the story is told in this game is so vague and it relies so heavily on aesthetic that I started to wonder if they were actually going to veer towards a more concrete style of storytelling. The fact that they do just makes that style of visual presentation and storytelling all the more impressive. And let's talk about that, because holy shit, it rocks. This is maybe the only game I've ever played where I wanted there to be more cutscenes. So the cutscenes in this game are really, really fucking cool. Not only do they cop that late 80s, early 90s anime visual style combined with that late 90s, early 2000s cel-shaded PS1 look, they also borrow the sort of cut-up, surrealistic visual style of something like Neon Genesis Evangelion or Akira. These cutscenes are wild and surreal you're constantly cutting to other scenes and visuals in the middle of a scene. There's tons of text flashing on screen, mostly in German, but sometimes in Japanese. It's just like this sensory overload that calls back to those scenes in Blade Runner where they would swoop through buildings and show you all these ads and signs and people filling the streets. It's such a cool style, and the fact that it's not just replicated here, but built upon in the game's own unique visual style and storytelling style is stunning. I absolutely loved it. And once again, I love it even more because not only does it give the game a great vibe, it also makes the story such a satisfying slow burn. There's so many things to consider. There's so much going on. There's so much overstimulation that you're not really sure where the story and the central mystery is going until the very end of the game. I think in a weaker game, this tactic would have been used purely as an aesthetic thing. We wouldn't have gotten that concrete wrap up. And we, I think personally, I would have been really frustrated with that. The fact that this game actually ties everything together uses the aesthetic to explore those existential themes about what it means to be human. It's fantastic. In this regard, once again, it is a slam dunk. And it's a game that if you're interested in all this shit, you have to play. I want to talk a little bit more about the story, but I think most of what I have to say is pretty spoilery. So we'll put a pin in it for now and talk instead about the gameplay. Signalis has a really interesting approach to its gameplay, and in some ways it's a massive success, and in other ways it's more of a mixed bag. Let's talk about what this game does right first. Number one, the puzzles. You maybe have already seen people posting about this online, or you may have read an op-ed about it, but yeah, the puzzles in this game are fantastic. They're super unique, and they're super inventive. Although a lot of them are still item-based, like in a classic survival horror game, the way that the game approaches that and the way that it puts a twist on that classic formula is so unique and so cool. Probably my favorite way that the game shakes things up is with the radio. Your character has a radio that they carry on them at all times. It actually seems to be sort of installed on them because once again, you're kind of a robot and you're able to manipulate this radio at any time through the menu screen. 
and multiple times throughout the game, you'll need to use the radio to solve puzzles. One way is by just tuning it to a certain frequency and leaving it on when you're near a character or an object, and other ways are slightly more obscure. You might need to turn into a certain radio signal to catch a numbers transmission, or you might need to tune into a certain station so you can hear a test signal and then coordinate that with another test signal, etc, etc. It gets really wild and weird as the game goes on, and I was never ever mad at it. Even some of the really difficult and obscure puzzles that use the radio were, once again, fantastic. Solving those puzzles was super satisfying and easily a high point of this game. There are other puzzles that are really wild and out there. They involve huge leaps of logic and using a bunch of different items, but once again, I was never mad at them. I think they're really, really smart and really, really well designed. It was super refreshing to play this game after playing, for example, the second half of Madison, where the puzzles were just extremely nonsensical, or even replaying a bit of Visage, whose puzzles are just complete nonsense throughout. This is a game that calls back to classic survival horror, but has arguably much better puzzles than any of those classic survival horror games. Another extremely well done aspect of this game is the level design. I love the map in this game. I love the level design. The areas in this game are very intelligently laid out and designed. Areas flow nicely into one another and it's clear that when you hit a block, you're supposed to go around or figure out another route. A lot of these things are locked behind puzzles like in any classic survival horror game, but a lot of them are just locked behind exploration and maybe doing a little bit of combat. There's tons of loopback shortcuts to unlock and new areas to find. You'll even find yourself kind of stumped and realize that you simply missed one room in the map that was just placed very discreetly. It's a great feeling and it's super, super fun to explore the world in this game. I mentioned Metroidvania games earlier, and I think that this game draws a lot of inspiration from those types of games. I think that the exploration in this game is so fun and so satisfying because it's much closer to something like a Metroid or a Castlevania than it is something like the original Silent Hill. I think that's one of the brilliant things about this game. Despite looking like a classic survival horror game and largely playing like one, it pulls from all sorts of different genres and styles to create something that feels really, really fresh and really, really unique. Now, let's talk about where things get a little bit more mid. For me, that started with the combat. Like I mentioned earlier, this game has a pretty unique solution to the wonky combat found in classic survival horror, and that is to make it more like a twin stick shooter. Now, just like in Resident Evil, you hold the left trigger to pull out your gun and the right trigger to fire. In between, however, there's a pretty different system than you would have found in something like Resident Evil or Silent Hill. In this game, when you pull your gun out, a laser sight appears. It appears as a straight line that can go across the entire screen as long as it doesn't hit an obstruction. You can then use the analog stick to move this line around and pick your target. When you are pointing at an enemy, a little box will appear around their head, and as it closes in, you basically get a more accurate shot. So if you're able to select your shot and hold it for longer, you do more damage with a more accurate and powerful shot. So this is a good solution. It feels a lot more fluid and usable than something like the original Resident Evil or even Resident Evil 2, which has basically the same kind of wonky spray and pray approach to aiming. In this game, it feels like you know what you're doing. You're aiming, you're selecting your shots. Now, the problem with this is that it still just doesn't feel great. The aiming still feels kind of slow and wonky. When there's a lot of enemies on screen, which there are in the later areas of the game, it's not very effective. And you're still left with a system where it's best to just run past enemies rather than fight them. This is kind of a bummer because the game does give you a lot of cool and interesting weapons and items, and there does seem to be a focus on dealing with and neutralizing enemies. 
One thing, for example, that they've included is basically the Crimson Head system from the Resident Evil remake. If you don't burn the bodies of your enemies, they will eventually come back. And the fact that some of them are so powerful and so bullet spongy makes that system really tense and a nice addition to the game. However, the fact that using some of the weapons was so slow and clumsy made me still just want to run past enemies whenever I could. And that's what I did for like 90% of the game. It was kind of frustrating because, once again, the game gives you a lot of tools and opportunities to have fun with the combat system, but it also includes a combat system that on a basic mechanical level I just don't think is very fun. Now, one problem with pretty much all of the super classic survival horror stuff they've put into this game is that it's hard to complain about it because there's an easy retort to it, right? Well, it's supposed to be that way because it makes the game harder, it makes the game more tense, and it makes the game more scary. And yes, I acknowledge that, and that's true. However, a lot of this stuff in Signalis just doesn't really land because Signalis isn't a super tense or scary game. Yes, there are moments of that, but in many ways, the fact that it uses that overhead perspective and the fact that your character does have so many weapons and is much more capable than a classic survival horror protag means that the game does feel a lot more even keeled than a classic survival horror game. There's creepy stuff in the game, there's gross stuff in the game, sure, but it's just not a super scary game. Now, I don't have a problem with that. I don't even see that as a criticism of the game. But I do think that it makes the inclusion of those classic survival horror tropes, which were meant to make those games more tense and scary, really frustrating. They sometimes feel like they're in here for no reason, because they don't make the game more fun, and instead they just make the game slower, more clumsy, and occasionally frustrating. Okay, I've said the word now, frustrating, so let's get into it. There's one thing about this game that I fucking hated, and at times it almost ruined the game for me. It is a serious issue, and it is the inventory system. What the fuck is the inventory system in this game? Well, okay, if you haven't played it, you don't know, so I'll tell you. It's the inventory system from the original Resident Evil. Six slots, everything you pick up takes up an item slot. Now on paper, you might be wondering, what's wrong with that? What's the problem? Here's the problem. This game is chock full of fucking items. I mean, literally everything takes up an item slot. Every key card, every key, even your flashlight, and of course, the mounds and mounds of weapons and ammo that the game throws at you. What do they all take up? item slots. Now, this is a problem because it means that you are constantly going back to item boxes. You are constantly in menu screens dumping things in and out of your character's backpack or whatever, and you're just constantly not even playing the game or having fun with it. Now, I say constantly, but I'm really referring to the second half of the game, in which the struggle is actually constant. In the first half of the game, it's not really much of a problem. However, a few things happen in the second half of the game. First of all, like I said, you get a flashlight. Now the flashlight is interesting because it feels like a little bit more of a modern idea. The way that it works in the game is really interesting. You have to manage it, like you can't just leave it on whenever you want, otherwise you'll draw enemies towards you. I guess as a side note, there's a little bit of a light stealth mechanic in this game that I really liked and thought was cool. You can sneak by enemies as long as you don't have a flashlight on or a radio on, and it lets you get past a lot of really, really um, packed hallways that would otherwise be super difficult combat experiences. Now, the problem with the flashlight is that it takes up an item slot and you need it to solve quite a few puzzles in the game. There are areas and rooms that you cannot do anything in unless you have the flashlight equipped and on. Even if you know where you're going in the room or where items that you need are in the room, you cannot pick them up unless you have the flashlight on. And in order to have the flashlight on, you have to be carrying it and taking up an item slot. Now, you'll be doing this alongside item puzzles that can frequently take three to five, in one case, even six items to solve. So what does this mean? 
You're constantly running back to item boxes. You're constantly dumping things in and out, and you're constantly in menu screens, which to me is not fun. It means that you're not actually playing the game. You're just fucking around in menu screens. This became extremely frustrating to the point where I almost just wanted to stop playing the game in the last two areas of the game. And that's because, once again, the item puzzles started to require more and more items. The game started giving me more and more weapons and ammo to use, but I wasn't able to actually carry all these things at once. So I was, for one, just not using any of the items that the game was giving me in terms of like weapons and ammo. And for two, I was just constantly in menu screens, swapping things in and out of my character's inventory. Now, once again, I understand the utility of this system. Like, in the original two Resident Evil games, it was so that you had to carefully plan and execute a run between two points. So if you're at one safe room and you said, okay, I want to solve this puzzle and this puzzle, grab this item, and then get to the next safe room. You had to be very methodical about it. You had to know where you were going and what you were doing. That's a type of gameplay that I really enjoy. It's also a type of gameplay that I enjoy in Metroidvania games, another thing that this game is heavily influenced by. Here, however, it just didn't really work that way. Because my inventory was so limited, I was just kind of not using items and just stockpiling weapons and ammo, which you can also do in this game because it is, once again, relatively easy to sneak by and run by most of the enemies in the game. Meaning that when I would get into these binds where I didn't have enough space for items and weapons, I would just kind of do runs of going around, killing every enemy, clearing out rooms, and then going back and solving the item puzzles. It was weirdly dispiriting and very, very boring. I think couple this with the game's classic survival horror vibe, which makes you want to hoard weapons and ammo and things like that, and it just made it a frustrating experience. I never knew if I should be doing things in that way, where I should be going out and just doing runs where I clear out hallways, or if I should be trying to conserve items. By the time I got to the end of the game, I had way too much of everything, but I also had no enticement to actually use these things. What's the point of trying out new weapons and items if I can't actually put them in my inventory? This is doubly frustrating because there are some really, really cool items and weapons in the game. I specifically really liked the defensive items that are in this game. Like there's a disposable stun gun you can use. There's um, a weapon that burns the enemy's bodies on contact. There's all sorts of cool stuff, but if you're not able to fit it into your inventory, why would you even bother checking it out? This even gets into why some of the boss fights are really, really frustrating. The last boss of the game even requires you to have one item slot free at all times so you can pick up an item to damage the boss. It's so fucking frustrating. And it's so frustrating because there would be such an easy fix for this. Like, just let the player pick up a couple more item slots as the game progresses, or don't make key cards take up an item slot, or don't make the fucking flashlight, which looks like a clip-on flashlight like in Silent Hill, take up an item slot. Why the fuck does it take up an item slot? It's so, like, almost game-breaking. Like, I want to just say it's game-breaking, but I know it doesn't because I beat the game and I enjoyed the game and I really, really like it, but holy shit! Holy fucking shit, that inventory system sucks. Now, when I was conceiving of this episode, I was trying to think about how much I want to talk about the stuff in this game that I found frustrating because number one, I knew I was going to lose my cool and it's okay. I've calmed down. I'm good now. But number two, now that I've finished the game and I'm once again contemplating replaying it, I'm kind of wondering how much all of it mattered. Like, I think I really, really loved this game. And I'm starting to wonder if the frustrating elements of it actually detract from the game or if I'm able to just kind of look past them because I enjoyed this game so much. I know all of those design choices were intentional and I know they were going for a super 
classic survival horror feel, which they did achieve and they really did nail. Like I said earlier, I think in terms of some of the basic building blocks of classic survival horror, like puzzle design and level design, there's very few games that have done it better than Signalis. And even in terms of some of the nuts and bolts stuff that is always kind of mid to bad, like combat, Signalis is much closer to mid to good on that scale than mid to awful. So really what you're left with is a super unique game that I think anyone who is a fan of this style or genre needs to play. I think it gets at so many of those deeper themes that we find in classic sci-fi and cyberpunk that it merits consideration and it deserves a lot of praise for how it handles those themes and achieves that vibe. Very few things are on the level of Signalis when it comes to that. It should be a very high point of praise that while playing this game, I really thought about Soma and the way that it played with existential themes like perspective and humanity. This game mines a lot of those same themes and in many ways is as impactful. I was really, really, really impressed with all of that. So yeah, before I get into spoilery stuff that a lot of you are not going to want to hear, especially if you are trying to go into this game blind, let me just say that, yeah, I think you should play Signalis. It's really, really fucking good. And I think if you go in with your expectations set right and you know how the game is going to play and you know that you're going to be a little bit frustrated at times, maybe really frustrated at times, you're going to appreciate the experience even more and you're going to understand that it's just a fantastic game and it's a rare experience that we get to see older genres styles and aesthetics revived in this style not just dragged out for another day in the sun but actually given new life and an infusion of fresh ideas signalis rocks okay i've said it Okay, so consider this your official spoiler warning. If you don't want to hear anything about the story or have anything spoiled, 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 stop now, right now. Okay? Did you stop the episode? You stopped it? Okay, great. Signalis' story is fan fucking tastic. Like I said earlier, I love how weird and vague it is. I love how they don't tell you exactly what the character you're playing as is. You don't know if they're a person. You don't know if they are humanoid. You don't know if they're just straight up a robot. All you know is that you have a lot of weird thoughts and visions flying around in your head and a vague goal to find somebody. That's it. As you play through the game, a lot is revealed to you. Some of it is about the world you're in, and some of it is about your character specifically. Like I mentioned earlier, in this game, you're a replica. You're a specific type of replica called an Elster, however, there are many other types of replicas. Each one is built for a different purpose, and each one has its own weird quirks. This is a cool idea that the game presents. Basically, these humanoid robots are a little more humanoid than the prevailing logic and ideology of the world would suggest. There's a lot of fascist imagery and fascist thought that's put into the text of the game. Like, it seems that in this world, these replicas are simply meant to work and complete tasks. They're meant to serve humans. However, from very early on, it's clear that they have their own identities and they have their own unique thoughts. Even your character is a good example. You're acting autonomously. You're on your own. You're on a quest and you seem to even have memories and present sentiment. But at the same time, the game is continually telling you that you're not human and that you're just a robot. There's another layer to all of this, which is that we're not really sure what's real or how much of the game is taking place in literal reality. As the game goes on, things get weirder and more surreal. 
We find out more about the world, but the world also becomes more twisted, dark, hellish, and unreal. This climaxes in one of the most stunning parts of this game, a section called Nowhere. Nowhere is such a cool level. Its design should be studied by other people trying to do this kind of old school survival horror. In this area, the aesthetic changes completely. The sci-fi thing almost goes out the window entirely. This place is all rusty cages and piles and piles of bleeding flesh. On top of that, we don't have a map. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the place doesn't make any linear sense. You might go in a door to the west side of a room and end up at the north side of another room. This kind of stuff seems subtle, but it works so well. You don't realize how much you've been relying on that basic north, west, east, south um, orienteering until you get to this section and it's all thrown completely out the window. On top of that, the way that we get in and out of this section is through a series of stunning cutscenes that once again are strange, surreal, and utterly beautiful. The things that happen in this weird nowhere place are strange and horrible. It's hard to make heads or tails of it, but it is a stunning experience in horror gaming. The final area even takes this one step further. It pulls us out of the hell world and immerses us in something a little more human and tied to daily life. Here, we learn the backstory of the human character that we've been tailing this entire time, our companion on that early spaceship. The relationship between us and that character is made very clear, and the boundaries between them are also made very, very clear. The way that this wraps up is nothing short of stunning. In a lot of ways, it should be a little tropey because it's something that we have seen before. And I am being vague here because I'm not going to just spoil the ending. I do want to talk about it more when we do the discussion episode, so I'm going to save it for that. However, the way that it's actually handled in the game is great. It really made me think about the point of everything that we just did in that game and the ways in which our character grew and changed over time. It also brilliantly circles back to those early documents we found in the game telling us about all the different types of replicas and their kind of personality quirks. When we find the one alluding to our own character, it's a really shocking moment. For me personally, it's not what I was expecting, and it foreshadows some really crazy developments in the story. I love how the ending managed to incorporate that and tie everything together. It's beautiful, it's depressing, it's thought-provoking. Once again, it reminds me a lot of Soma. It makes you ask, who is this character? What perspective have I been seeing this entire time? And what does it all mean? This was the moment when I think the game fully transcended for me, and also why I want to play it again so badly. I think that in terms of classic survival horror, there's a real question of utility. Namely, what can you do with one of these games? A lot of it tends to be centered on kind of basic mechanical stuff, like can you scare the player? Yes, sure. Can you give them a tense and thrilling experience? Yes, of course, that's probably what they're mechanically best at. Can you give them, however, something deeper, something more psychologically focused that is thought-provoking and that avoids simple cliches and tropes. That's the big question that I think people have been asking about survival horror forever. It's why some people are so obsessed with Silent Hill, because they see Silent Hill as an answer to that question in the affirmative. Yes, of course. Look at what this game did. It told a really unexpected, sometimes beautiful, sometimes moving story. However, I would argue that Signalis does it in a way that's even more unique and emotionally affecting. It really does feel like something new made out of old parts and ideas. I think in a lot of ways for this type of game, that's the best you can do. That is the best thing you can make in this style. And that's what was missing from some of those throwback survival horror games that we played that I just couldn't get into. 
that real heart and soul in the story, as well as the feeling that I was playing something new and unique and inventive. Signalis is all of those things, and for that, I think it is amazing.